I had a, a donor and friend who came to me and was like, all right, like I, I always was, was down with your work and I'm activated, I'm angry. What, am I, what do I need to do? What are we gonna do? And I said, strap the fuck in. Because two weeks from now, when we're no longer talking about this and we're back to the pandemic and we're back to the election and the nonsense with the toddlers going on in DC, people are still gonna be hurting. People are still gonna be in pain and still gonna be asking, what the fuck are you gonna do? And I want the people who are activated now to make the commitment that they're gonna stay engaged past the point when the cameras are pointed to it. And that they're gonna do not just the big ticket things, which we definitely need to do, but the little things that do harm reduction in the cities where you live. Both and, that's how adults get stuff done. Sometimes it's what you can get, sometimes it's the principle, and doing that balance is critical if we're ever gonna actually make progress on all of these unpaid debts. In the midst of a wild, needed national conversation about policing in America, there's no one better to talk to than Dr. Philip Goff, a longtime expert on policing, who's also a professor at John Jay College and the co-founder and president of the Center for Policing Equity. He's the guy who studies the police and parachutes in when departments are in trouble to help them figure out how to really reform. He knows the force. He knows the data. He knows what can really work. If you want a really smart conversation about policing, he's the man. I called him last week and I said, yo, we have to talk now. It's Dr. Philip Goff on Torre Show. I've been at several protests over the past period, and I've seen what I would feel like are police attacking citizens. And we've seen lots of videos where police are being uh, aggressive towards citizens who are compliant, who are, you know, lying on the ground or kneeling on the ground. What is that about? I mean, there was a headline in Slate saying um, uh, police break out in violence across America. Right. Um, there, the, 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 narrative that they will have on that is um, you have people who are being unresponsive to lawful orders. You didn't hear the lawful order. They won't disperse. It is a public danger. Um, and anybody there is up to no good because they have a curfew after all. And all the good people um, are already home before the curfew, even though in Santa Monica, they let people know after 3 p.m. that the, the curfew had been moved up from 7 to 4 p.m. Mm. So, um, <clears throat> and in fact, many people didn't get the alert until after the curfew was in effect. But the reality is Remember where we are. I, I know that it's hard to remember, but remember we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and then many of these cities were supposed to be locked down. The amount of stress and anxiety, people losing their jobs, not having their jobs, cops having to go out with no PPE because there's been no federal um, uh, support for that, no testing, their family, you know, their kids um, not being able to social distance because there's no place else to go. Hotels are shut down and cops can't get access to it. The cops are as stressed as the rest of us. And in New York, at least, the cops had a four times higher rate of contraction of the virus. Right. So they're feeling under attack by this, this viral um, <clears throat> enemy. And now they're getting their uh, called names. They're like, I wasn't even in Minneapolis. I didn't do that. I had nothing to do with it. I think that's awful. Um, that's not to excuse. That's to give the context of what they would say is why that one time they didn't have hold their pool, that one time they spoke out of turn. Um, what we're really seeing, though, is what can happen when there isn't accountability for people who are tasked with solving problems with taking away life or liberty. 
I mean, That's, part of it's, it's not more complicated than that. Part of it seems to be that when these protests devolve into violence, most Americans go, oh, the protesters were violent. And they aren't going to say, uh, well, the police started it, right? If they see police beating somebody up, they assume that person must have done something to deserve that. So in a way, police attacking, for most people, serves the police's needs because it proves that they're that they're right because if they weren't because they're beating somebody up it must mean that the person did something wrong yeah i mean so you're also seeing the logic of white supremacist organizations infiltrating protest right because if a white supremacist throws a molotov cocktail then runs to hide behind a black person and black people end up getting beat up by the cops the the narrative is protesters were violent black people actually are are damaged black communities get burned down white supremacists are winning left and right right but the narrative we have is that these people might be dangerous and they might be deserving of, of harsh punishment from law enforcement or from the, from the criminal legal system, um, like sort of downstream. So anything that goes wrong, it's black people that suffer. Even our protest has to be perfect. Even our anguish and our grief has to be perfect. And if you yeah. don't understand that as part of the someone looking at the experience, understand that that's a weight that the protesters I talk to and the organizers I talk to, they're carrying with them, is that their protest, their grief has to be excellent. We've seen officers showing a white supremacist signal in photographs, in videos, how big of a problem is that that people in white supremacist organizations are in our police forces? Well, I'll ask you, I'll answer that question with a question. If the FBI came out with a report and a judgment that said white supremacist groups are, are uh, determined to infiltrate municipal law enforcement, would you take that seriously? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that happened. <laughs> um, uh, that's a real thing <laughs> from the previous administration straight through. So since the FBI has said that's a problem, I tend to agree that that's a problem, right? They came out publicly and said it. How widespread do we think this is? So it's difficult to tell because while there, there have been public statements on the fact that it's a problem and that it's a trend, there hasn't been public statements on um, the uh, confirmed knowledge of how many and where. Um, but I will tell you that when I walk into roll calls in police departments, I am met with people, you know, throwing me that, um, and I'm met with people throwing me suspicion that makes me very concerned about what would happen if we were left alone in cornfield. Um, it is the rare department that I visit, and I'm mostly dealing with large city departments where there is no element of it, and it's difficult to say how big it is. I, like, do I think it's greater than ten percent? In most departments, no, I do not. I think we're still talking about a small minority, but 5%, 5% of a department being even marginally affiliated with, with the Klan, maybe they don't, they don't pay their dues, but they show up to the cookout, right? That's one in 20, right? One in 20. So that's a terrifying number. If it's 1%, so much the better. If it's half a percent, so much the better. But if we're talking about percentage that we can start you know, counting on our fingers, um, as opposed to fractions of a percent, we should be worried. And if the FBI thinks it's a it's a, a trajectory, it's a vector, it's not just an anomaly, then how on earth is that not something that um, stabs at the heart of public safety and public health and deserves the, the kind of attention the FBI has been calling for and has not gotten? That is frightening as hell that as much as perhaps 10% 
of big city police forces are actual white supremacists. Um, I, I, I don't I don't believe it's that high. I think it's it's I'm using that as as the ceiling. It's it's almost certainly not that high anywhere. But I don't know how to guesstimate it, right? I don't know if we're talking about one or a point one because it's not available. And the point is, the FBI thought it's serious enough um, of an, of a, an intent that they've been calling for help, right? They've been calling for help and have not received it in the way that they. And did. the and the police departments are not motivated, are not interested in weeding out people who are who are white supremacists. What is that about? So, Tere, I'll answer that question with a question. How do you fire a white supremacist for being a white supremacist? Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, that alone is not enough. I mean, you could have a statute that says if you are a dues-paying member of the Klan, you can't join. I, did the Klan even take dues anymore? I don't know. Um, what this is, is because it's ideology and, for, and, and oftentimes it's protected by First Amendment, you can't fire somebody for being a member of a Facebook uh, group, for sharing messages, especially if it's not public. Um, what you can fire them for is for their behavior on the job. Um, and their behavior off the job is, is allegedly up to them because of freedom of association. So it's hard for departments to come through and say, we're going to wipe out all the white supremacists. Also because even the white supremacists talk about white pride, they're somehow not prideful enough um, to wear I'm a white supremacist on their jacket walking in. So they're not readily identifying themselves. I mean, one of the other, I mean, there's so many problems to weed through, but we saw two NYPD SUVs running into protesters. I want you to address that. Because there was room for them to reverse, and they couldn't do that. They had to go forward. But also, of course, the mayor came out, Mayor de Blasio came out, and largely defended them and both sides that moment, which was horrifying to me, especially as a man who, he's a man who ran, who has a black wife, two black children, ran as somebody who's like, I understand what it's like to have a black teenage son who's very tall and vulnerable to police. So I get it, black community. So to have this happen is such a betrayal. Um, but it seems like cops, we see bad behavior and then we see unions and mayors standing up for them. And I don't understand that ecosystem. So I want to be clear. I can give you answers for what they will say and how it's, it's rationalized with them, but I can't make it right. Yeah. Um, so the tactic in the SUV um, is that you create additional space by stunning someone, um, by pushing them back, and that allows you to, to back up. So I saw one who ran over somebody, then back up, squealed to turn around and get out of the way as protesters were chasing after the vehicle. Um, that's a tactic I've seen employed before. Um, it was entirely unnecessary. If your goal is public safety, is actual the safety of the public, pro tip, don't run out other, over people, right? Just don't do it. Um, it's, it's not, it's not, I know I didn't need my PhD to give you that bit of wisdom. Don't run over people if your goal is to try and keep people safe. Um, so I haven't spoken to the officers. I can't see what, what, what's, what I can't see, but that seemed entirely unnecessary and, and, and unnecessarily provocative and detrimental to the public, to the public trust. But the ecosystem of unions making statements um, and mayors and chiefs supporting them, here are the things to know about that. 
municipal law enforcement is one of the largest expenditures of almost every um, city and county in the United States, if not the largest, the second largest everywhere. Okay, um, that comes with it significant um, pension. So usually most cities have two police departments, the current police department and the one retired that we're still paying a pension to. Okay. And that means it comes with significant political power, right? Significant lobbying in many cities. There's no way to get elected without the blessing of the police union. Um, and here in New York, we have multiple police unions. There's a rank and file. There's the Sergeant's Benevolent Association that was, had some choice tweets yesterday. Um, you have command staff and you have uh, above. There's, there's uh, 50, 11 um, unions in, in New York. Um, sometimes there's one, sometimes there's two. But the union is an incredibly powerful political element. If I'm the chief or the chief executive, right, so commissioner, uh, superintendent, what have you, I need the public to like me, the mayor and the city ca- uh, council to like me, and the union to like me. I need at least two of those three to keep my job. So if the public doesn't like me because they don't like policing in general, I, I need the mayor and I need the union, right? If the union hates me, I better get the public and the mayor. And if the mayor doesn't like me, I better have the union and the public. That way I can't get fired. But if I'm the mayor and the union and the commissioner or the, in, in, in some cases, the chief and superintendent, if they come out, speak out against me, everybody who is scared around public safety thinks the mayor is to blame for not supporting their department. So the ecosystem is I'm a weak mayor and I'm worried that I'm, I've lost the union and I might've lost the chief. I got to support them. Otherwise, they're going to come out very vocally against me and I'm going to lose the public, which is my constituency. If I'm a chief and the public hates me, I better lean into the union. Otherwise, I lose my power to go after the mayor and I might lose my job. Right. So there's a, this kind of mutual death cult in politics of supporting each other for the electoral reality of it and the job security of it, as opposed to adults speaking honestly about what everybody's eyes can see. And we're seeing that in far too many places, a complete lack of adult leadership in in all these issues. I mean, the unions don't seem to say, we are going to defend all cops at all costs, no matter what they do. Um, It's almost like a a caricature of like, no matter what a cop does, the union will come out and defend him uh, or her. And they don't seem to take any sort of long view or any greater view about like bad acting individuals or people who get caught acting badly make everybody look bad and makes it harder for the majority. No, they're just like, just the worst. In, they, they seem to be just constantly there to represent the worst individuals. Yeah, I mean, so this is, you know, John Pfaff has made this um, argument very effectively about prosecutors. Um, the prosecutor's job should be, like their client should be justice, right? This is the Brian Stevenson line. Um, and their job should be determining the values of, uh, of the case and, and what the appropriate uh, accountability should look like. But if you're a prosecutor and somehow you fail to seek the harsh, harsh punishment um, that a community wants, even if the reason is because you have a principle for as for why, you're going to lose the next election. Right? People don't think about their DA. They don't think about their prosecutors unless there is a, a case where they weren't harsh enough. It's rarely that they're like, oh, you were too harsh. That, there's no incentive um, to not be too harsh. That nobody loses because of that until very, very recently. Until recently, until, until recently, yeah. you see some of that, right? But go on. Very, but, but very, very recently, like last two, three years, we're starting to see that as a movement. Um, and God bless the folks who are making that possible. If I'm a union leader, if I'm a chair or a president of a union, right, I, I'm not getting thrown out um, uh, because I defended too many people too uh, adamantly. I'm getting uh, thrown out because some people are like, hey, they didn't defend Jeff, right? I could be next. 
And the person who runs on, I'll defend Jeff, that means I'll defend all of you. Hey, that's a safe bet. There's no incentive for wisdom in the, the voting or electoral process here. The incentive is for draconian. Um, mm. and, and until we fix that incentive structure, it's going to be difficult for adults to be in charge. How much of a problem is the way they dress and the over-militarization of police departments? So it's a good question. Um, on one level, I think it matters symbolically because if you, if you come dressed for war, then your mind comes ready for war. Um, I'll say having observed folks using bearcats and tank-like structures in um, the riot gear, which law enforcement refers to as like their turtle gear, um, that the behavior is not often all that different. Right? You're not often mo much more emboldened because you have a, a shield and a mask than you were before. The real deal is it's because I got 20 people standing shoulder to shoulder with me. Right? It's become because I'm rolling deep. It's not because of how I'm dressed. So do I think it's a good idea to demilitarize our law enforcement? I absolutely do. Um, do I think it's a good idea to take the, the militarized tactics out of our law enforcement? I think that's a, a deeper thing. But the equipment, I am less moved that that is a, a major lever on change. But let me give some context on this. There have been a lot of folks who are like, who've come to me and called, they said, well, Magic Wand, what, can, what do you want to do, right? You want to fix all of this. What's the one thing? What's the silver bullet? And I keep trying to tell folks, I need you to grow up. This, what we're looking at right now is not the outrage of our, of our good friend, George Floyd, who we knew, who got killed by a man he knew. We didn't know him. This is not about the one man, it's not about the 20, it's not about the, the three high profile ones in the last two weeks. This is the unpaid debts owed to black people throughout this country's history. And if you imagine that we're gonna, with two or three policy tweaks, fix policing that way, go to bed so that the adults can fix this, mm. right? This is not about one thing. We're going to need huge quantum leaps and we're going to need harm reduction, incremental change, system change, radical change all together, because we're not just trying to fix one public system, which is, by the way, now not just one public system, because policing and public safety is also mental health and it's the ER and it's family planning and it's suicide prevention and it's substance abuse. Like it's all of those things. We're not just fixing that. We're fixing our unrepented sins and our unpaid debts. So it's going to have to be a lot of yes and all over the place. So militarization, sure. It's not, on, not top of my list, but it's somewhere on there. And if somebody can get it done, good for them. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting 
is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. When you look at the George Floyd arrest as an expert, what do you see? So when you look at, if you, if, when you're watching the video, it's difficult for me to be an expert first. I'm a black man first. Um, there are some of these that are really sickening. You know, the Maude Arbery one was like, it was literally, it's physically made me ill. Um, I, 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 the first time I watched it, I remember I, I threw up, um, and I have a cast iron, like how I got this stomach so because it's cast iron. So I, I'm not, I'm not used to having it come back out. I like to savor it. Um, the, the George Floyd, and honestly, with, even without video, Freddie Gray was another one. Just, there was kind of intimacy to the violence that felt sickly. And what we, what we were watching, especially when you understand that Chauvin was made aware there was no pulse and there was two minutes and 53 seconds of continued pressure to cut off airflow and blood to his brain. And his face was a face of defiance as if someone was doing something bad to him. He almost seemed bored. Like he's just no. posing beside the big game I, and he's just- I tell you, I tell you, that was not what that face meant to me. Having seen officers in the field with that face, I recognized it as something different. Um, so there were people there screaming at him saying, get off him saying he's not moving after he had narrated his own murder. And what he was saying was, y'all don't matter to me. Y'all can't do anything to me, right? You can't make me move. I can do this for exactly how long I want to do this. It wasn't 
boredom. It was defiant presentation, defiant performance of indifference. And that is way, way worse. Mm. Mm. I'm sorry, we're, so we're clearly going to be in it this whole, whole way through. You got to give me a heads up. Am I allowed to curse on your show? I don't Absolutely. remember if I'm allowed to curse Absolutely. on your show. Absolutely. Okay, excellent. Absolutely. Then we, 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 will, we will have less of me trying to, to restrain yeah. myself and we'll get a little bit more raw Philly. Just even like the move that he's doing, I don't even understand that. Like it's, it doesn't, in, in no way does it seem professional or an attempt to subdue a person. So the, the argument that you'll hear from tactical folks is that if you control the neck and the head, you control the rest of the body and you can do that in a way that is less dangerous to the person who's doing the controlling. Um, so you wouldn't know it's from the body, but I'm a, uh, in high school, I was a former wrestler. Like you can control the head, you can make the body do a whole bunch of different things. So grapplers know that that is a wise tactic, though it's also dangerous if you don't know what you're doing or you're careless with it. Um, so it is within policy in Minneapolis PD. Um, I am guessing they're going to change that policy. Um, and it's within policy a lot of different places that if someone is struggling on the ground, even if the struggle just means they're kind of wriggling and trying to get out from under, you can put a knee on the back of the neck, on the back of the neck to hold them still because um, it's less likely that you will, with an errant knee or a hand, get hurt. He was not struggling except to breathe. So there's no way you can justify that movement as proportional to that risk. Like you just can't, it was a murder. It was a, a depraved indifference doesn't get to it. He had two minutes and 53 seconds to decide whether or not he wanted this, this man to continue not to have a fucking pulse. It was a murder and he looked right at the camera while he was doing it. I, I haven't been able to watch it all the way through. It's too hard, this one. It's too much. It's too much. And not only do we have Derek, but there's three others who are aiding and abetting. What's going on with them? So I'm not going to speculate in terms of what's in people's minds, but I will tell you that um, Chauvin had been on the force for a while. So I believe he was the senior most officer on the scene. Um, that means that he comes with a kind of social and positional power over other folks. And if someone were to say, hey, man, hang out, there is a cost that that officer has to pay later, right? Maybe it's a social cost. They get teased. Um, you'd hate to think that someone refused to stop a murder for fear of being teased, but that's a real thing. But there also could be worse costs. There could be people not coming when you call for backup. And that is part of the culture of law enforcement is that we have each other's backs um, because we know that at any moment we might need that. Um, but the, I mean, the reason why the duty to interrupt unlawful uh, behavior was put into um, the regulations of Minneapolis PD is because there were community folks who wanted it. You had a chief who was ready to reform and they were already getting data back from nerds like me on, yeah, y'all need to really do this. Um, so we know that that's not, that there's no excuse for it, but it's hard to imagine. So try imagine you and I, we're going out for drinks, right? You with your bike, we're going to try and find a place for it. Um, and, and me walking from the subway, we're going out for drinks. And you know me, I'm a good guy. I fight for what's right. I've had your back. Folks come after you in social media. I come after them, right? Like we're boys. And all of a sudden, you know, we're in a bar um, you go to get to, to uh, take a piss, you come back, 
and I'm sitting on somebody and they're struggling. I'm like, this jackass trying to mess me up. And they're, they're trying to beg for their life. And I'm like, whoa, this is just, look at this is crazy. That's a really cognitively dissonant thing. Cause you didn't think you were showing up to go to drinks uh, with me and I was going to murder somebody. So when you're watching someone getting murdered so casually, it might be difficult to figure out that that's what you're watching. Mm. There's no excuse for it, but I imagine that that might be disorienting to some people. It is, however, your job as law enforcement not to get disoriented in that moment and to step in and prevent one of your fellow officers from murdering somebody. I don't know. Like, there's no, there's no making sense of this. A man who had killed on the job previously decided that he was going to murder this individual. I don't know where within the eight minutes and 46 seconds he decided he was going to murder him, but he decided to murder him. Three other officers were available to stop the murder in progress and did nothing. And that they murdered with the uniform of the state on their bodies means that the United States allowed and trained for people to go out and murder people and to, and to endorse the indifference. Obviously not every cop, right? I'm not talking, I'm not trying to paint policing all one way, but that's what we saw. Don't try and make it something that makes more sense. It's just that. The other part of the other sort of angle of this is that it was filmed. Right. And what, 10 years ago, their cameras were not ubiquitous and now they are. And I know I have talked to officers who have said, we know cameras are everywhere. So we behave differently because we know any and everything could be filmed. And this he clearly saw the crowd and the cameras straight at it. and continued. And I, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm, I'm just going to, I'm a, I'm a push back a little bit on this idea that officers change their behavior. Um, the ones you've talked to are probably some decent human beings, right? And also they imagine that there might be consequences. There I mean, I don't, know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't be friends with somebody who's a piece of shit. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I like to think so too. Um, but so for a lot of them, they imagine that there will be consequences if they're caught on camera doing something they shouldn't. So they're aware of that. But for lots in law enforcement, they think that what, what they saw on camp, not this time, but what they saw so many times before, that's all right. It was okay. Why would I change my behavior if what I thought I was doing was okay? If it was literally within my training. We train officers to do things that nobody in this country thinks are okay. And then we're surprised when they do them and there are no legal consequences for that. There are things that are legal that are not moral and ethical. That's always been the case in this country. Right. And the fact that we have, have licensed law enforcement to do that means that we have to clean that up. They can't do that themselves. We have to do that with them and in many places for them. Does in your research, does the job change people and shape them into people who would sometimes do evil things? Or is it the sort of person who is attracted to policing like is it happening at the at the entry point or, or or in the shoot? So it's the answer to to your question is both. Um, but I'll say the kind of people who are attracted to law enforcement generally are folks who like to get out and do things, right? They like to be proactive on the world. They don't want to be reactive to the world. Um, 
And most of the law enforcement I deal with are folks who, who, who like, there is a, jo- a job that I can do, which is doing the right thing for a living, right? That is laudable, right? Um, it's the, they, they got a uniform. It's the closest thing you can do to wear in spandex and a cape um, without getting looked at funny, right? So that's great. And they go and they do the job. And for many of them, the job lets them understand, wow, these social ills, we can't solve them. We're being misused. We're being sent to places where if they had a hospital, if they had jobs, right, they could be doing for themselves. We're sent to punish people who've already been punished by their circumstances. I've seen that happen. I have also seen people who didn't realize it or did when they came in and they liked the power. And they see how powerless they are to actually do any good in communities that have been abandoned and abused by um, the, the broader society. And so in those spaces, they try and find bad actors, people who it feels like they might be doing some kind of good, but really it's the power that does it. Um, and I think the thing to, to realize is that, yeah, you're going to get a certain kind of person who wants to come in law enforcement, but that, that doesn't have to go one way or the other, right? Um, and the kind of experiences law enforcement is going to have, that doesn't have to go one way or the other. But that is a powerful, powerful shaper in all of the directions. So you can come in and go really, really far in the direction of doing evil and come in and go really, really far in compassion and wisdom. And that's going to depend a lot on the type of city you're in, the type of resources you've got, the kind of exposure, the kind of mentorship and help you get. There's so many different factors to it, but it's not overdetermined. You don't come in as a jackass and then become more of a jackass just because you're doing it in policing. You come in prone to proactive engagement, and then you can go any number of different ways depending on how the job takes you, but the job will take you. What are some other ways that the job takes you, that the job influences you? So um, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of a, a friend of mine um, who, when he was uh, uh, walking a beat, he was on patrol, um, they had what they called Mexican National Night. Mexican National Night meant that you would get a reward if you impounded the most cars driven by Mexican nationals. So he's explicitly racist and xenophobic. Um, and the leader of that unit at one point when they had arrested someone who was um, a local sort of narcotics legend, um, a black dude, but still on Mexican National Night, the leader of the police unit got up on top of the car that they had impounded from this, this guy and started doing a dance like a monkey. So it's pretty deeply, intensely racist. <laughs> so the individual who was my friend said, I came in, I said, I can't do this anymore, right? You either have to give me control of a unit so I can prevent this stuff from happening, or you have to deal with the fact that I'm going to tell everybody I know everybody and their mama, that this is how this police department operates. And you can imagine it could have gone another way. You can imagine you're like, okay, he's a bigot. I don't have to be. I'm I'm just going to find a way to make do and do my own thing. And so you pull inwards. You can imagine it could have gone a different way where you knock somebody's uh, block up. Like if I was tall and big and strong, like we we would have been fighting in my 20s. Are you kidding me? Um, But the point is you get exposed to moments like that. And then the next day you're in the same neighborhood and seeing a woman who has been brutalized by her partner and whose kids are afraid every time a man walks into the room and it's your job to get them into safety, to literally physically protect them as they move out of that house. And you realize, you know what? I did something today. You, you, you will not have experiences of the kind that police have every day. That's why there's so many police procedurals is because you go out and ride along with law enforcement. like. But every day is different and it's powerful. 
not in the cheesy way of, you know, a police procedural, but like it is like you are dealing with people in their worst, in their most transformative moments every day. And you are a key player in that. There's no way that doesn't change you. There's also no way to know what ways it's going to change you. Do they tend to see themselves as heroes? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's important to resist generalizations on this. Um, I have known people who definitely feel like they're heroes, um, who feel like they have earned a cape made of the same polyester. Um, and I have known people who, when you say, wow, you're, you're really heroes, they'll spit at you. Because they're like, no, we are the sad excuses of what's left of investment in this community. Um, so no, I don't think there's a tendency one way or the other. Um, I think you see the full spectrum. Um. I am afraid of the police as I move through the world. Is that by design? Whose design? I mean, the, yeah. Their, their design. Like, do they want me to be afraid such that I'm easier to control? No, I don't think that this is a, a sort of vast conspiracy um, of white supremacy. I think these are a bunch of, of unfortunate accidents of white supremacy. Right? It's white supremacy. Um, it's just not that there's somebody, you know, trying to pull the strings. Um, I say yes, because, you know, law enforcement as a profession, in part, grew out of the need to regulate the movement of property that had two legs and was forbidden from reading and writing. Right. So like slave patrols and law enforcement patrols share a common ancestor. Um, and then, then the enforcement of Jim and Jane Crow regulations, particularly sundown towns, the movement of black bodies, particularly black male bodies, was regulated by law enforcement. And there was no point when America said, wow, that was super fucking racist. Let's stop that and reinvent. Right. There was no moment of like, hold up. Do you see what we've been doing? That was so racist yesterday. Today, going to be all new. No, no. So, yes, like that, that old design, like you, you got, I mean. You've heard me talk about this before. Like, you got race memories. It is, of course, by design. It's just not the design of the people who are in power right now. They're not thinking about that. They weren't explicitly tasked with that, and they don't measure their success by your fear, at least not directly, right? But it is a, a legacy that's not vestigial. It's still active in the way that law enforcement deals with us. But, I mean, the way that terrorism works is that we attack one person and that sends a message to other people. And it seems quite often that law enforcement knows how to make an example out of somebody, which then leads me to go, oh, wow. Like if you just get in their way a little bit, they might flip out and attack you. So like, don't, you know, and thus, thus the fear becomes a tactic to like, we don't even have to worry about him because he's a big wimp and he'll run away as soon as we breathe. You know, that guy over there, he's a little more hard. He's, you know, but there's probably more people like me who are like, I'm running because I don't want any part of this, which they've created by incidents that we've seen. So I think that's right. Um, the issue, though, is who is the, the we who are scared? Because if the we who are scared are just the criminals, mission accomplished, right? They're not. The issue you. is, I say, <laughs> the issue is it's not we who are criminals. It is we who are black. Yeah, right, exactly. It's we who are black and, and, and especially the bougie black people. God, I'm like, keep that shit away from me. I don't need the gas. 
Um, I don't want the clubs. I don't want none of that. I don't even want you talking harshly to me, please. I got sensitive ears. Remember the usual suspects and they were like, the one who did it will sleep well because he knows like <laughs> the worst is already happening. Like I'm the one, the criminal is like, hey, you know, I, 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 I budgeted for this. Like, I'm like, <laughs> yo, like I, I, I'm scared because I'm trying to do everything right and you're coming at me. So, yeah, I, I think that in the minds of um, law enforcement that, you know, in the, in the perspective that I hear from regularly, it is absolutely like all of proactive policing is we're going to be on the corner where you're going to go so that we can prevent you from doing that. Our presence is a deterrent. Right. And we want our presence to be a deterrent. The issue is that when you've decided to criminalize whole communities and behaviors that everybody does, but you're only going to enforce them when black people do them then you're not scaring criminals, which are hard enough to scare in the first What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamine a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. First place, you're scaring communities, which means that we're not calling. The reason why the clearance rate for murder in Baltimore is so low is who the heck in Baltimore thinks that the black murderers are, are less dangerous than the police? Right. Right? Like, live with that. When you know who killed somebody, and you're like, but the police can't protect me. I'm going to trust the murderers over here. Right? Like, that's a life. That's not something that's a, that's a character flaw of the people of Baltimore, right? That's a policy failure of the department. Where's your, what's your position on abolition? We're talking about slavery or policing. I'm, I'm pro-slavery <laughs> abolition. Um, very when pro I started abolition. talking to Black Lives Matter folks a lot um, and started to hear the argument that we should not have a police force at all. And at first I was like, what are you talking about? There must be something. And they're like, okay, colonized mind, wake up. Um, <laughs> how often do the police come into a situation and make it better? How often do they come into a situation and make it worse? And I would be like, well, you know, what would be the response? Like what would women do who need protection for domestic violence? They're like, oh, well, please. Like you definitely want the cops to come into your home to sort out that stuff. Um, and they talked about, you know, co- community, com- basically what we would call community p- 
policing, which kind of goes back to some of the earlier roots of poli- after slave patrols. But, you know, there were disconnected community forms of policing before it became a more organized thing. So we have had that historically. You know, in America, the notion of being protected by people without guns seems insane. England is like, no, you guys are insane. We do just fine. Um, what do you think about getting rid of the police force altogether? Um, so, yeah, I love the English model because since there are so few guns, right, like it's not stop or I'll shoot. It's just like stop or I'll say stop again. Right. Like it's a great moment. <laughs> of, I guess that's what's, what's happening. Like stop or I will come around to your place later and we will have a very stern conversation. But are they um, but, are they ineffectual or the Bobbies like not getting it done? No, I mean, so so if you could take the guns off the streets, then you wouldn't need to put guns in the hands of officers for sure. Um, I think it's interesting to note that violence rates in the UK are higher than they are in the US, um, but hospitalizations as a result of violence are much lower. So you end up with, with you know, fist fights and, and broken bottles, but you don't end up with shots fired. Um, so no, like it's, it's not a hit against the, the UK. It, the, the issue is you can have a kinder, gentler law enforcement when you have a kinder, gentler populace, like when people don't have long guns at the ready. Um, so and on abolition, I think that it's really key to talk about what we mean by it. If abolition means that we're not sending law enforcement uh, to try and improve a situation which is a domestic disturbance between two people, right, I'm in favor of that. If it means... Um, T- taking budgets that are massive and taking significant chunks of those budgets and putting it into the social programs so that people don't need law enforcement. So nobody needs to call them because their mental health, their substance abuse, and their other problems are taken care of. They have jobs. They have ways of me- making meaning of their lives and managing their emotions. I'm all in favor of that stuff. By the way, I, I have a place where, where we do that in the United States. It's a, very, it's a small place, but I think you might have heard of it. It's called the suburbs. Have you been there? It's lovely. (laughs) Yeah, it's lovely. I highly recommend you visit. You go through, um, though you want to bring a white friend. Um, the, The point is we already do this where public safety is about the resources of the community more than it is about the individuals who are there to punish. We do this all the time across the United States. Um, we don't do this where black people tend to live and we don't do this even when black people tend to live in those spaces. Um, so if abolition means the reduction of police resources and the investment in community, um, there's good research to, to suggest that people do better because, again, we've seen the suburbs. If it means the unilateral disarming of public safety in spaces where gun violence and poverty are rampant, I, I, I'm going to tell you, when I talk to folks in those communities and when we do uh, polls in those communities, that's not what the majority of the community wants. So I'm interested in empowering the community and I'm interested in all things on the table, right? Like I said, incremental change and leaps and bounds both. Um, but I'm not interested in taking folks who fear for their life if they couldn't call law enforcement and taking that resource away from them. I am interested in focusing on the resources that communities need instead of and before law enforcement. Some people would say, well, you know, there's not that much crime in the suburbs and there is a lot of crime in the urban areas. And I wonder... Over the long term, how criminogenic is policing? Are we are the presence of the police, the heavy presence of the police in a given area over a long term of time, is that creating crime and criminals? So let me back up just a little bit because I think it's really important we get at what crime is. 
things, right? So you're talking about, I mean, you're, you're basing that because I, I know you, you're a knowledgeable person, you're highly literate, numerate. So you're looking at statistics about what crime is. I think it's important for everybody uh, who's watching and listening to understand there's no such thing as crime statistics. They don't exist. There is a myth. There's no such thing as crime statistics. Anyone who's like, I'm citing crime statistics. No, they're not. That's a lie. There's reported crime statistics. And the difference is really important because I know that you have been to college campuses and you have seen people smoking weed, right? I'm not going to say what you did when they were doing that, but you have seen that happen, okay? I also went to a college campus where sometimes people would partake in that strange tobacco. Those or people other are drugs. Arrested. There's also other, other drugs, drugs on college. Yes, They're, true. There are many they, other and, drugs. And they don't always go to the hood to get them. Sometimes they get them on the campus. Frequently. Um, uh, and in fact, now um, you can get that from, uh, uh, you know, delivery services, right? Um, so uh, people are mad when it shows up late. Um, but the point is law enforcement isn't going to arrest there because they've determined that, that is a low disorder environment and enforcement of um, narcotics uh, in that environment would not serve the public interest. So even the things we've decided are crimes are only crimes when some people do them. Right. And they're only crimes when somebody's called them in or law enforcement records them. So it, people are saying, well, there's, there's not that much crime in the suburbs. Really? Not a lot of substance abuse in the suburbs? No, nobody taking pills and wine? That's never happened on every show about every person in the suburbs? That, that's never happened? Okay. Nobody sure. And there's, there's no, no, no mental health concerns, no drinking and driving, um, no domestic violence, no, no child abuse in the suburbs. That's never happened in the suburbs. No Nobody's guns. ever hurt, right? Yeah, no guns at all. Um, you know, and definitely there's not, nothing like um, illegal uh, uh, dealing with finances. That's definitely never happened in the suburbs. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. Um, there's different kinds of crime, and we criminalize it differently when it's in situations where black and brown bodies exist in high concentration. Mm. That's that's what I'm trying to, to get folks to understand. So your question is a valid question, but it's, I want to make sure that we understand it within the context of stuff that I do is criminal because I do it, not because of what it was that I did. So when we talk about, oh, well, you know, I, I treat everybody equally, right? Well, great. Good for you, only person in the history of humanity who's ever done that. <laughs> The criminal justice system doesn't fucking do that, right? And if you're saying, oh, well, you're calling all officers racist, recall, I get, I get the phone call. Cops bring me in. They ask for me by name. I am a name brand for law enforcement who says, we have a problem. We want to know things. They understand that there's an issue that they need to get better at. So everybody's like, oh, there's no, you're just calling up, like, shut up, go to bed. The adults are talking, right? <laughs> the chiefs understand that this is a problem. This is not up for conversation. Right. So with that context, um, we do, I mean, you may be right, have been trying to reference this, but we, uh, maybe you don't know, we recently published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences um, looking at how police contact um, with juveniles is associated not with decreases in illegal behavior, but with subsequent longitudinal increases. That means when you have contact with law enforcement, six months, 12 months, 18 months later, you're more likely to be engaged in crime, mm. right? So you talk about being criminogenic. We don't have the difference in difference models that we'd like to get very close causality. It's, it would be unethical to do a randomized control trial, but you got precedence on a longitudinal study. That's dangerously suggestive that police contact at least isn't helping. 
right? Because the, the kids in our sample who had no contact with law enforcement were no more likely to be engaging in illegal behavior than the kids that had contact with law enforcement, right? So contact with, with cops is not necessarily a good thing at the juvenile level, and we don't know that much about the adult level. Um, to, to answer, to answer at least the, the narrow version of the question. No, no. The, let's talk about some ideas that uh, Deray McKesson and others have 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 talked about in terms of things that we can and need to do, like really direct things we can do to reform policing, um, changing uh, the use of force hierarchy, right? Change. Uh, uh, demanding cops do more de-escalation, uh, banning chokeholds in many, uh, chokeholds are banned in some municipalities, but in many more, they are not banned. Um, uh, creating a duty to intervene, or you call it a duty to interrupt. Um, if an officer sees somebody else committing, another officer committing a crime, they must try to stop them. Um, what do you think is important there? What do you think is possible there? Including getting prosecutors to let cops know if you murder somebody, you will be going to jail for that rather than what we have where prosecutors quite often are like, I'm going to do what I can to get you off. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of things that we need to be doing. Um, and I, I won't, I won't know what's possible in this moment until we've tried all of them. Um, duty to retreat. That's an important one. So um, there's a joke um, in the, the United States, uh, if you've got an active shooter, um, you call to get more guns and it takes an entire department to get them out. In the UK, if you've got an active shooter, you call to get coffee and it takes two people to get them out. One to get the coffee and the other one to stay and wait. Because they're just gonna wait, what are you gonna do? Right, like at some point the food's gonna go bad, you have to come out at some point and then we're gonna calmly take you into custody. That's how it can work. Um, so the duty to retreat in those situations, um, instead of the duty to act like, uh, like you're tough, that can be incredibly valuable. Duty to de-escalate, duty to intervene, um, uh, uh, use of force standard um, that is standardized across the United States. Um, there's a resistance to it because of federalism, but there's a good reason to think um, that we can take the best available evidence and say, these are what the standards should be for the ways in which the state is allowed to use violence. Um, taking, looking at the mens rea standard for civil rights uh, litigation, all this stuff, so that they have to intend to be racist in order for you to talk about um, what, what are racist, racist outcomes. All of those and, and, and. I think right now there's a couple of things that we're talking with with our partners that are most possible. That's a national federal ban on a chokehold, right, or on a carotid hold, which isn't quite a chokehold, but still a carotid hold, um, and a national registry of fired officers. Those two things would be things that activists have been wanting for a long time, that actually a lot of chiefs have wanted for a long time too. Um, and so it seems like, I mean, not only is it possible, that's real substantive. Because if that carotid ban had been in place, that hold on, on George Floyd isn't legal, right? And it's automatic. By the way, it also probably would have saved Eric Garner's life. Right. right? So both of those two things together. And one of my big fears here is that several months down the line, some of these officers aren't charged, they're, they're, they show up someplace else, and God forbid they be in, involved in another terrible use of force incident. What's it gonna feel like when the people who were part of the murder of George Floyd are reemployed someplace else and they're part of another murder? Right, I mean, so like the, the officer, I think it's Timothy Lohman, um, uh, was the officer who um, uh, uh, killed Tamir Rice, right? 
Um, he was being referred for termination for an inability to manage his emotions and, and a, a tendency to escalate physicality too early. He quit that job before he could be fired, came to Cleveland, killed Tamir Rice. I believe he is currently employed in law enforcement in Bellar, Ohio. How, how is that okay? Part of the reason is because we don't have a registry of officers who've been terminated for misconduct. Because there isn't in the 18,000 roughly police departments across the United States, there isn't centralized standards for all this kind of stuff. So for lawyers and for doctors, if you're disbarred or you lose your certification, you can't practice. But if you have a badge and a gun, but there's I nobody mean, who says you can't. Police chiefs have telephones, right? I mean, generally when you go to, you know, if you went to apply at another university or for another job, typically people would call your previous job. How was he? Was he cool to work with? Did he do the job well? Thank you for the recommendation. Uh, can they not pick up the phone and say, hey, what was it like working with it? What, if I'm police chief in X town, why would I want somebody who murdered somebody or had a string of complaints in another department? That's a liability for me. Yeah, that makes some sense. Um, of the 18,000 police departments across the United States, roughly, 75% of them are 25 officers or fewer, and 1,000 of them are one guy. It's always a guy. So if I worked in a department that was 13 officers and something bad went down, and I moved to another department that's 26 officers, um, and I say, yeah, here are my references, of the 13, two of them thought I was cool. And one of them was maybe my, my uh, supervising officer. So you called, they said, yeah, he's cool. Stuff got a little bit crazy, but it's fine. And that's how it goes. Like, the guy we imagine murders Tamir Rice. You, you, you can't tell me that the chief called. The chief was like, eh, you know, we had a little thing, but it's cool. You can trust him. Like, see, you imagine that it's chief to chief, but in most departments, that's not how the conversation's going. Or it's, just, it's a, a civilian board, right? Um, civil service board. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, a hiring committee, right? It's not necessarily chiefs calling from chief to chief. I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying no, that it, it's not possible, but of you course. imagine a professional, you imagine a profession. But if it's a professionalization board, standards. But you, you're you talking about a board. If it's a board, nobody on the board is like, let's do some due diligence. And I'm saying, what what is the due diligence on it, right? The due diligence is I call a couple of people who were there and who knew him or her, um, and they all checked out. So you're right. When, it, when I'm applying for a new job, right? I send references and they also call whoever else they happen to know who knows me. But the people who they know who know me, those might be just the people who like me. They don't know the people who hate me, right? They haven't talked to them. And I, I don't usually give out the names and numbers of all the people who think I'm a jackass. <laughs> so if you're not doing careful due diligence, like, so like, like, which should be just like a Google search. Does this person come up with police homicide? You'd think it'd be that easy, but you say, well, Came up, with, well, came up with a police homicide, but it was adjudicated, justified, was not prosecuted. Am I going to deprive this person of a job because they did a thing that technically was legal? I might get sued. Mm, I can't not hire you because you didn't get convicted and I might get sued. Mm -hmm. Wow. Or, well, you weren't fired for anything previously, so maybe you just had a conflict with the chief. Remember, there's only 12 people in that department. Wow. This, this is why a registry matters. 
It's a tool that states can use um, to make this stuff easy. The other deal is that law enforcement has got a, a terrible reputation the last uh, six, six years. Um, and so not everybody is really jumping at the chance to go into that profession. Um, so they're trying to staff up. They're trying to hire as fast as they can to meet the needs of their, uh, of their community. And so sometimes you end up with people moving too fast. I'm not saying it's a good idea. Sure. I'm not excusing it. I'm just explaining no, this is how is. it happens. Yeah. So are you saying that there's a there's there's not enough police officers for what the police departments feel they need? There are too yeah, few I mean, police it, officers? It is really a crisis across the, the country is in recruiting and attracting enough qualified officers. It's worth noting, however, in many departments, um, they have prohibitions against ever having been arrested, ever admitting to using uh, marijuana, even if it's legal in the, uh, in the state afterwards, um, uh, ever having been picked up. So there are things and associations with known um, uh, individuals who've engaged in felony behaviors. These are things that disproportionately prevent black and brown folks from signing up. Mm. So which is part of the reason why you have police departments looking the way that they do. Are there other crises in policing that the average person may not, because I had no idea that they felt like they had too few people, which is perhaps why they're hiring some people who I would say, hey, I, I wish you would not hire that person, but they're like, we're, we're understaffed. Are there other crises that are affecting American policing that the average person wouldn't be aware of? I mean, Yes, <laughs> but we're we're almost at the end of an hour here, man. Like, how are you gonna ask me that question with like six minutes left? Yes, there are many many crises um, going on. I think it's important. There, there's a couple. I think it's really important to to begin to understand. Um, and a couple the, the couple that that are on top of mind that I want to I want to especially for your uh, viewer make plain have to do with the intersection of race and gender. Um, so in all the research that I've ever seen. Um, and the research that we've ever done, one of the best ways to de-escalate um, a, a interaction um, with somebody between law enforcement and the community is to be a woman. Because it turns out that when guys, especially guys in the community, end up doing macho shit, women have seen that before and are experts at, <laughs> at um, uh, diffusing it. But major city law enforcement is 87% men. Um, and so for all the racial disparities in the hiring and the promotion, the gender disparity knock socks off. Um, and that is particularly important as we start thinking about human trafficking and sex work. Um, <clears throat> so the ways in which um, undercover work around um, human trafficking and sex work uh, functions, I think people would be really as appalled as they are by the violence. Um, I think they would be shocked um, by how vice narcotics engages with the sex work industry. Um, uh, the ways in which people's rights are compromised, the ways in which people are unaware that they're engaging with law enforcement, um, uh, and the ways in which particularly women and trans folks' bodies are treated by law enforcement. It is, it's difficult to stomach in some cities. There are a number of cities that are really working to try and do better where this is an open conversation. And cities and places you wouldn't expect, New Orleans and Atlanta have had really robust conversations around this, particularly as um, trans women have died in large numbers, particularly black trans women. Um, but we need to start having a conversation as soon as this is, is set up and we've done the things that we can do about how gender is often an invisible portion of the work that law enforcement does. I mean, it always intersects with race, always. Do you find 
that black uh, officers are torn, are feeling like the blue and the black are pulling at each side of me, or do they get sucked into the blue? So the conversations I have are much like the conversations that I have with black folks in corporate America, where that space is not for them. It is set up to abuse people like them. Um, They are assumed to be complicit in that mission um, at the same time that they are brutalized within the space. That's not everybody. That's certainly not all the time, but it is the same trauma as every employed um, a black person that I know in integrated spaces. Um, <clears throat> that said, we often don't see differences between black and white officers in terms of their behavior, um, in terms of their treatment, in terms of the racial disparities of those treatments. Um, so there is a way in which blue is the most important color for law enforcement. Um, there is also no doubting that for the individual officer, they feel the weight of that identity differently than their fellow officers. Um. Anything else you want to enlighten us in the last moments we have together? You know, I, mean, I just I think it's important to go back to a, a, a theme I was talking about earlier about being an adult for this moment. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's most heartbreaking to me, like it hit really hard with me on Wednesday because you see the video on Monday. On Tuesday, you're starting to see things pop off real bad. Wednesday gets worse. And you're like, oh, we're, we're back to this again is I got basically a clock in my head of how long this window of people paying attention to this is going to last. And as somebody who was here when Ferguson fires were were blazing and was doing this work before then, it is so crushed. I get text messages from people in Baton Rouge about the Alton Sterling murder. Talking about we're still working on it. Folks don't remember Alton Sterling, right? They don't remember, like, they're like, oh yeah, that was a name. Um, I, you know, looking in the face of um, the folks who loved Philando Castile, like his partner, who was, it was, it was so calmly, like by God's grace, filming it, saying, please don't have killed my, my man, my love. And the world moves on without having delivered a goddamn thing. No piece of legislation, even symbolic, no municipal policy, not a goddamn thing. And we're in this moment where people are talking about, we've tried all this stuff and it hasn't worked. So we got to do something even more radical. And I'm like, the fuck were you when we were trying that? Because when you say we were trying it, we were trying it underfunded. We were trying it like for 10 minutes. We have not even tried the basic incremental stuff. So it's got to be yes and And partly what that means is we've got to build up the emotional fortitude to keep looking when nothing's on fire. It's got to be both and, and it can't just be when black people or white supremacists or whatever the heck is going on in this country right now are lighting stuff on fire. It can't just be the sensational story. I'm sorry that it's exhausting, but imagine living with it and not having a fucking choice. So I want people who are hearing you and who are hearing me right now. I had a, I had a, a donor um, and and, uh, and friend who came to me and was like, "All right, like I, I always was was down with your work, and I'm activated. I'm angry. What am I? What do I need to do? What are we going to do?" And I said, "Strap the fuck in. 
Because two weeks from now, when we're no longer talking about this and we're back to the pandemic and we're back to the election and the nonsense with the toddlers going on in DC, people are still going to be hurting. People are still going to be in pain and still going to be asking, what the fuck are you going to do? And I want the people who are activated now to make the commitment that they're going to stay engaged past the point when the cameras are pointed to it. And that they're going to do not just the big ticket things, which we definitely need to do, but the little things that do harm reduction in the cities where you live. Both and. That's how adults get stuff done. Sometimes it's what you can get. Sometimes it's the principle. And doing that balance is critical if we're ever going to actually make progress on all of these unpaid debts. Thanks so much to Dr. Goff for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, and Gerville Calais. Tour Ratio gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Show. Tory Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. <laughs> <laughs>